This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mengia. And I'm Luca Livizmeble. And our topic this week is... Bye-bye, Okiap. So long, old friend. Oh, interesting. But first, we have some follow-up. Yes, we do. So, this first item of follow-up is related to our uh, old episode about the Nintendo Mobile games and also some of the other follow-ups we had in a recent episode about some of the 2019 Nintendo Mobile game. And on... So, it is yesterday for the date of recording, but on September 25th... That's today. Oh my goodness, that's true, that's today. I, I, I'm all mixed up. It's, it's a good way to start a new episode. But yes, it is today. So September 25th is today. Uh, Nintendo finally released Mario Kart Tour. Uh, in the end, did you, did you pre-order it? Because it was a nice surprise for me because I woke up and it was already installed on my phone. I thought I did, but apparently not. Oh, okay. And Yannick and I have uh, our opinions about it. So today, I think I spent more with at least 30 to 45 minutes playing the game. And I think my first impressions are the following. I liked the concept. Every time that they were showing us teaser and all that stuff, I liked the what I was shown. Some of our follow-up patterns in recent episodes were about the Android beta, where people were saying that the controls were more or less shit and janky. <laughs> that is the same with the like the GA version, the, the release version. It is still the same, more or less. The carts auto accelerate. It's like an, it's kind of a more or less like an RC car. So it controls itself. It it drives itself, but it doesn't control itself. And the 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 driving mechanic is more or less drifting, which I feel is kind of a typical Mario Kart thing. But not so great to control your car, especially with your finger. I've seen sometimes when you try to swipe left to do a drift left, it does a like a, a drift on the right. I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, which controls did you use? Did you use the normal controls or the drift controls? Because there were two control schemes. I guess I used the drift controls. Right. Because it told me, like, use the normal if you're a first-time Mario Kart player. And I'm like, fuck that shit. I'm an expert. I'm going to go do I the expert I did, controls. I did the same, too. Yeah. Um, I probably should go back and try it with the normal controls to see, like, it probably literally is just a reverse, uh, setting for the controls. I can't imagine the turns being that different, uh, in that mode. But yeah, it, initially it is quite jarring to actually, like, be swiping in one direction and it's the opposite. It's kind of like when you first enable natural scrolling on Mac OS X. Uh, it's just disorienting. And you're correct. I'm looking at my uh, settings right now, and it says manual drifting. I, of course, my phone is in French. I'm like literally translating. But uh, I have enabled assisted driving, automatic objects, and uh, manual drifting, which surprisingly enough, all of the two other options are in white text. Manual drifting is in yellow text. It means expert. <laughs> I guess it means expert. But I recall this menu where it was saying, saying oh, are you an expert, blah, blah, blah. And then I I did the exact same thinking as you did just to say, hey, I'm a great at Mario Kart. But I just realized that I might not be so great at Mario Kart with my swiping thumbs versus my thumbs on joysticks. One of the things that reminds me a lot of is the, uh, in Mario Kart 8 and Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, there are a lot of auto assist features for less skilled players 
And the whole time I was playing this game, I felt like it was playing Mario Kart 8 with those settings enabled. And in fact, as far as I know, it could be exactly the same code. Uh, But it just felt like I had very little control over what I was actually doing. And the game wasn't really... I mean, it was allowing me to fail, but not that much. It was like allowing me to fail within parameters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you try to drive off track, it won't let you drive off track. You yeah. might ug, have a, a fun ug with the wall for half of the circuit, but that's mainly it. And the other thing that I, I couldn't tell if it was um, if I was playing against bots or if I was playing against real humans, because I was like bumping into the wall the entire race, and then I would finish first place. And I was like, "This is oh. fishy." No, I, I some of races, some races, I did not finish first. But of course, I was having a shoe driving. Let's put it mm-hmm. this way, and I was able to finish like six, seven. There's uh, eight people with, uh, including yourself. So yep. it's seven plus you, uh, and I end up in some point, some points having in eighth place. I think once, uh, but oh, I wow. end up play like some uh, like five. I think third place. But uh, maybe before we continue a bit, like uh, we should be explaining the mechanics a bit, though, how you collect points and all that stuff. Of course, it is a free-to-play app. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, since you've played to some of the uh, more RPG-like uh, mobile Nintendo games, but this is the first one where there's a subscription. Uh, the Gold Pass, you mean? Yes. Uh, I think maybe Animal Crossing had something like that for a while. Oh, but, could um... be, yes could be because i don't recall that in animal crossing nor in dr mario but the idea is there's limit so there's a gold pass in canadian dollars it is 6.49 per month so it's quite expensive uh and it gives you of course like uh germs gems not germs but gems (laughs) i would be concerned if it was germs (laughs) yes it gives you gems of course it's a free-to-play app so you end up having gems at some point or germs depending on how you think about free-to-play apps uh, but I digress. Uh, one of the modes that is only reserved for the gold pass is the 200cc. So, uh, you can unlock like 50, 100, and 150 quite easily. Um, but 200cc is only reserved to those players that pay a monthly fee. And you, you get more or less rewards on top of uh, having the 200cc mode. Of course, you can go the f- typical free to play route where you just pay to get germs or gems i think i'll say germs from now on uh and also unlock some characters by playing i think there's like package deal where you get gems plus a specific characters but this is a typical uh, mechanics uh the way you evolve from like a uh, cup to cup is by uh unlocking stars so the uh, so depending of which character plus which card plus which glider you have, it, it, there's a point of value associated to them. And depending on which action, so let's say you uh, throw, uh, throw something at an opponent, it gives like, say, 50 points. And depending on the action you do during the race, it gives you an amount of point. And depending on the number of points you got, there's a star ranking and you get from one to five stars. And of course, the more star you get, the more cups you unlock. So that's kind of the gist of the gameplay. Uh, that I don't really mind. Like, I think it's okay. I think it fits with you at trying to maybe beat yourself and make sure you have the most points. I mean, and... it's pretty standard progression for Mario games for the last 10 years. Like, that's yes. pretty much how all of them have worked. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and not even for mobile games, like, like typical Mario games. I yeah, yeah, I'm talking like 3DS and 
we yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah for sure uh of course the i think the not the best part but the only part where they could put like those free to play addiction thingy is like really to unlock more characters and it's kind of using the typical like japanese free to play game mechanism where to get free characters you need to put gems and there's like a randomness attached to some of them because there's like normal characters there's rare and ultra rare which I think that's what has been shown as successful, quote-unquote, for those mobile games. So, yeah. Uh, the graphics themselves, they look quite great. It, it Like, most of the racetrack, they are associated from old Mario Kart games, and they kind of look alike from what I've remembered, especially from Mario Kart 8. And that I was quite surprised. I've seen sometimes that the performance was not that great, but I think it kind of... I think maybe it was donating something in the, in the in the side, and I just updated to iOS 13, so that maybe that too. But like, like in the last two three uh, races I did, like the performance was okay, and the image quality was great. Like I was greatly surprised to see the same level of graphics or the kind of same the kind of feel I'm used to see with Mario Kart games, especially with the Wii U and the Switch on the phone, and that is great. To me, it looks very similar to what you see if you try running like Mario Kart 7 in a 3DS emulator upscaled to like 1080p. Okay, I never did that, but I will believe your word. Well, it, it looks closer to, let's say, an upscaled 3DS game than if you were taking Mario Kart 8 and dumping it onto your phone. Okay, that's kind of the sad part because I feel that those graphics is something I was expecting on the phone, but now that it's kind of behind a janky like, controls... <laughs> It kind of frustrates me because it's like I would like to play this game, but this game is hard to play for sad reasons. Yeah, the, the controls are bad. Um, I can't tell again, like if the players are bad or if the bots are bad. Um, I'm also not sure if this is real multiplayer or if this is like simulated multiplayer based on a profile of people who have raced previously. There's a multiplayer option that says coming soon. When you go in the options. Okay, but like when you do a race in a Grand Prix, are you actually matched with real people? Or is that just like a ghost or something that is simulated? Because I know Forza has that where like if your friends are offline, you can still race against them. It's just like a simulated version of how they drive. And I don't know if Mario's doing that. I assume it was... I wasn't sure if it was real people or kind of the real but simulated I don't think it was simulated, but isn't it with uh, Mario Super Mario World? No, Super Mario Run, where you can go in the Toad mode, that it is a recording of your previous exploit. Yeah, that's a ghost. But the thing that throws me off with Mario Kart is you can run into other carts. Whereas if it that's was true. a ghost, you wouldn't be able to run into it. You would just go through them. Yeah. So yeah, that I don't know. I guess uh, since it's was release yesterday quote-unquote uh it might be a bit early to know about that yeah it's just a bit weird and all of that stuff and yeah i'm not feeling the controls the the spinning for characters the gotcha mechanic it really feels out of place in a race game um like i i guess technically like cart parts do have some sort of advantage in this uh, as they do in any other mario kart game um, but the change is going to be fairly minimal. 
So I don't think I care about anything to actually want to gotcha for anything. Now, the, the big exception for this is if Nintendo decides to make Bowsette a real character, uh, they will make a billion dollars overnight. So they should do that. Who? I misheard you. Uh, you haven't been on the internet in a year because this week has been Bowsette's one year anniversary. Bowsette. Oh, no, uh, no, uh, I forgot that. You will need to go look up Bowsette on the internet. Uh, you probably haven't heard of it because you are not a straight man. <laughs> okay, sure. It's the greatest fan created character of all time. Wow. Um, so if Nintendo decides to make Bowsette a real character, they can put the, her in the game and everyone will go spend a billion dollars right away on the game and it will be a tremendous success. But until they do that, nobody cares about Mario Kart characters. Uh, so I don't think this is going to make very much money and having shitty controls is just going to make it even less viable. Uh, so I don't think this is one of the greater, uh, Mario Kart, uh, not Mario Kart, Nintendo mobile games that we've seen. Yeah, and even if in the recent weeks I haven't played too much Dr. Mario, I know uh, the weeks after we uh, talk about it on this podcast, uh, I did play it somewhat. I wouldn't say a lot, but just to enjoy it. And I felt that the more we go through, the more the, the worlds or the, the challenges were becoming difficult without paying. So that kind of pisses me off. But mm-hmm. I was still enjoying the game at that point. In the first few levels where the, the challenges were kind of, Hard, but not so hard, where it kind of says, hey, you might, it doesn't tell you you should pay, but you feel that, oh, you might need this power up that you need to pay to have. So that's, uh, that's a bit that, but I feel that with Mario Kart World, like maybe in like two, three days, it go, it's going to get uninstalled and we'll just forget about it. And that's the sad first impression I have on my side. But if you listeners have played it and enjoy it, please let us know. We would like to hear from people who of course enjoy it maybe if they exist okay let's move to your follow-up items okay let's start with a big one uh well actually before that that that's a tease that's what we call it in the business uh <laughs> oh my goodness i should start with the programming note that we are going to be taking a hiatus following the release of the next episode episode 123 which will be released on october 13th and we will be returning with episode 124 on november 24th we've said it for like the past four or five episodes um but it's coming up pretty quickly so we're just going to remind you And that transitions very nicely into the evergreen topic of the show, uh, mobile payments, of course. Of course, of course. What did you don't tell me about mobile payments? I'm sure I'm missing something here. Uh, Well, I have three points this week um, for mobile payments. The first one is I imported my Suica card onto my Apple Watch this week. True, you told me that, yes. So, um, like, this isn't going to be news to people who have actually done it, of which I think there are probably, like, one or two people <laughs> in the audience. Um, so, when you import a Suica card into uh, either your phone or your Apple Watch, it is a one-way import. What's interesting about it is, originally, when you buy a physical Suica card, you pay an additional 500 yen as a deposit for the physical card. I'm not exactly sure why. It just seemed to me like, oh, okay, I'm paying 500 yen for the card itself, and then the rest of the money is going into the balance. Um, when you do the transfer, it reimburses you your 500 yen, which means I guess the card costs nothing, and the deposit was for nothing? I don't know. Especially because you don't give them back the card. No. Uh, and especially since I have like a, I, I have a discontinued model of the Suica card, I have like the, the NEX, uh, Narita Express Suica bundle card. So it has a custom design that like my collector friends have never seen. And so like, I'm not giving that back. I, I just get to keep my collector's edition Suica card and I get my money back. So cool. Thanks, I guess. 
But yeah, so now I have like 500 extra yen on my Suica that wasn't there before, so that's cool. Um, I don't have to worry about losing my Suica Pass anymore because it's backed up to iCloud. Uh, so that's just cool. If I get a new phone or I lose my phone or whatever, I just restore from iCloud and the card is just restored back to my phone. Um, the card can be charged via credit card via either the Suica app or the wallet app. Um, I believe, I don't know if this is still the case, but at least around the time that this Suica self-launched, the Suica app only accepts uh, Japanese credit cards, whereas the wallet app accepts all credit cards. So I think if you're international, you don't have a choice but to use the wallet app, but I may be wrong about that. Now, this is the thing I sort of wanted to talk about. The Suica card can only be on one device at a time, which is kind of strange. Um, it can either be on your Apple Watch or on your phone. And I'm having a hard time deciding which one I want it to be on because if the Apple Watch battery dies, you can't use your train pass. And this is only sort of a concern because uh, the weekend of the Saitama Kawagoe Festival, I'm going to be going to Kawagoe uh, to the festival with some of my friends. And then we're going to be sleeping at a friend's house. And then the next day we're going to be going to Nagano. Uh, So I'm not necessarily going to have my Apple Watch charger with me. And if I put my card on the Apple Watch, that means that if my Apple Watch doesn't last two days, I'm kind of screwed to come back home. Um, so luckily, like you can freely transfer your Suica back and forth, but it can only be in one place at one time. Okay. So that was literally my next question. Like, can you transfer it? So I could decide like for the weekend, I'm going to put it on my phone and then I'm going to go back to the watch, but it's weird. It's like, I never really considered that to be a problem until it actually became a problem for me. Um, so just something interesting to talk about. Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that you can transfer it back and forth is pretty good uh and just in general it's an interesting thing to think about about like whether you want it to be on your watch or your phone because like the scanners for uh for the suica cards are on your right but i wear my watch on my left hand which means you have to do like this awkward thing to actually get the watch onto the scanner whereas with your phone you could just plop your phone from your right hand right on the scanner and it's not a problem so there's all of these trade-offs that you have to consider that aren't really trade-offs it's funny i don't have this problem because i'm a left-hander that's true well i mean you would have this problem with all your devices because you're a left-hander because you would be oh i get it your watch would be on the right wrist okay yes my watch is on the right wrist my phone is also in my right pocket uh, though it's funny because in Montreal I do have this problem because my wallet is in my left pocket. So I'm always like mm. kind of doing this uh, crossover because I always have something like it's always this way. But it's it's a, it's a snarky comment that is gaming back to me because uh, Opus card is not on wallet. What's cool about Suica is that it is one of the supported card types for express transit cards, which means... I can just have my Apple Watch always be tappable on scanners all the time. Uh, so I don't have to double tap the side button at any time. I can just tap it onto scanners, whether it's to pay for things in stores or to uh, get on the train. So that's nice. And that's pretty much what I have for this item of mobile payments. However, we have two other items to go through, uh, but we're going to go through the next one pretty fast. Uh, Richard sent in a product for us to look at on The Verge. Uh, Starbucks Japan announced a new product in their line of Starbucks Starbucks Touch, I think the product line is called. Uh, we mentioned these products like 
back when they were announced and then we sort of stopped paying attention to them. Um, but this uh, last week, they announced a pen with an integrated Felica Starbucks gift card, which like there's nothing really exciting about this product. It's just so weird and nerdy and specific to us that I felt like I had to mention it on the show. Uh, it's just a $30 pen with like a 10 or $15 a Starbucks gift card on it. Big deal, but uh, I just thought it was funny. Uh, next up is something related to iOS 13 because iOS 13 introduced extended APIs for interfacing with NFC and Felica objects on iPhone 7 and later devices. And what that means is that numerous apps have been released in the last week that allow you to scan your Japanese transit pass to view your transit history. Ooh. Yeah, apps like these have existed on Android since about 2010 when the Nexus S was released with the built-in <laughs> NFC stuff. But now in 2019, we have finally caught up to 2010 Android and we can scan our Japanese transit passes. Uh, just a little warning that if you're privacy conscious, uh, you won't be asked for location sharing permissions. But by scanning your card into the app, you are revealing your location history to the app. Uh, so there's no telling what the app is going to do with, with it. There are a couple of these, but the best one I've seen so far is called IC Card App. It is by the Japanese indie shop Super Lucky Boy. And what's really interesting about it, aside from the fact that it is very pretty, is that it features identifiable but not trademark using icons for all of the supported IC cards by uh, design genius Louis Mantia. Um, I adore Louis Mantia's work, and I think he is one of the greatest people in interface design that we've seen in the last God knows how many years. Uh, so it's super exciting to see him work uh, on this app. I haven't tried it myself, and the reason is, uh, well, first of all, I have no f- money left in my Japanese iTunes account, so I can't buy it on the Japanese app store, and it's not available in international app stores yet because they're waiting on an English localization before putting it up. Uh, and one interesting feature of this app is you can also export CSV logs of all of your transit history. So that's also cool. So that's it for mobile payments. However, we have more follow-up. Oh, yes. Just a quick note. Uh, by the way, the core NFC videos are still in my watch queue. And uh, at one point, I really want to go uh, look at it because uh, last year, the announcement were mainly, oh, you can scan NFC bar, uh, NFC tags uh, in the background if you have a 10s so i would like to see what's new in ios 13 and i've seen that there's a 31 minute session about it compared to i think last year was like 15 10 was super short so i'm (laughs) eager to see what's where's there what and and it's funny because at google io in 2011 uh shannon and i sat in on uh the like android and fc api session and i have a feeling like it's it must be very redundant with what we saw back then because effectively like the iphone just got those apis but just nine years later true true okay next up is a follow-up for episode 109 which was our smart home buyer's guide because as of today apple music is available on the amazon echo in canada and i don't think this was really publicized anywhere i just found out because i was in the alexa app today um uh, there was however an alexa event today where amazon announced a whole bunch of new hardware uh i which I think like none of which is coming to Canada. Um, oh no. Like there's the Echo Buds, which are like the AirPods, but for Alexa and a bunch of other weird shit. There were glasses. It's fucking crazy out there. Um, so yeah, Apple Music on the Amazon Echo. You forgot about the ring too. Yeah, that was also weird. 
it requires an active subscription, even if you're only intending to use it to listen to Beats 1, which is what I was planning to do. Uh, so whoops. Uh, that's too bad. Uh, Beats 1 usually is available for free to non-subscribers of Apple Music. So that's unfortunate. Um, if you do actually link up your account, you can set it as your default music service, which means you can just ask Alexa to play whatever, like play Juice by Lizzo and it'll play. Uh, you can also... Uh, use it from within routines, which is really interesting because it means you can now automate stuff uh, around Apple Music, which I don't think you can do with HomePod yet. Maybe in 13.2. Um, so yeah, that that is kind of interesting. I'm not sure if I'm going to get on board. Uh, I'm still like a little bit bothered by the fact that I'm sort of accidentally signed up for two music services that I'm not happy with and I don't want to pay for a third. Um, but that's another episode. Um, so I will get back to you if I do sign up to it. I, I'm very excited because Apple Music and Plex, I believe, are your only two options right now on Alexa to listen to music that you own yourself, like that you've ripped off CDs and that are not just like some file in the cloud. Um, mostly because Apple Music has the iTunes match stuff and Plex doesn't care because it's on your home server. So I don't know. I, I'm interested in these solutions just because of the idea that I could have a playlist with custom music that I like and not just like whatever garbage is on Prime Music. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and last but not least, I have some follow-up for episode 119, which was about Final Fantasy VII. Um, this was not intentional follow-up. Uh, I just accidentally lucked into it. Um, so I was watching a video on the Resonant Arc YouTube channel. Resonant Arc is a channel that reviews a bunch of different JRPGs, and they were doing a collaboration video with Patrick Holloman from the Game Design Forum as a guest. Uh, they were talking about Xenogears, and this has nothing to do with the actual video itself. It has to do with the guest. Uh, I went to his website because he said he was an author who wrote books about game design, and I looked at his lists of books, and he wrote a book about Final Fantasy VII, and right there in the description of his uh, book, which was Reverse Design of Final Fantasy VII, it said that Final Fantasy VII intentionally withholds the mechanical complexity of the game until the end of the game to avoid distracting from the story. So there you go. That's why I was not happy <laughs> with it. They oh, saved yeah, the good yeah. part for the end. <laughs> wow. That, that was all I needed to know. You know that's a good strategy, though. You want to keep people playing. Maybe they just like if it's like it's a, like it was a bit like me. If they keep them curious enough, then they'll just power through it. Yeah, but it would also be nice if the game is mechanically interesting on top of having the story. Like maybe don't make it mechanically overwhelming, but make it mechanically interesting. Oh well, that's too bad. But whatever. So that's all I have for follow up this week. Good. So let's move to the main topic for tonight. Uh, as I said in the introduction, tonight we will be talking about a service called AkiApp. And I guess this one is kind of related to my recent topic. I think they all have a common topic, which is more or less Luco brings uh, some of the day-to-day -day job stuff into the podcast. And this week is another good example. I will be explaining how to migrate from a service called AkiApp to another service called Visual App Center without too much stress. Visual Studio App Center. Yes, Visual Studio App Center. I don't know why. I just forgot to wrote the word studio in my notes. 
which from now on I'll refer to it as VS App Center because it is simpler to say. So more or less what it is, Absent, uh, App, Hockey App is uh, a crash analytics tools. But before I go into more, more detail about what does it mean for iOS apps, I will separate this topic in three sections. So of course, first I'll, I'll explain Aki app and what it is and why you should have already used it in your iOS or Mac apps. Then we'll go to some uh, of the migration step that you can find and also some of my tips to make this uh, time miss, make this seamless. And last but not least, uh, some of the gotchas that you need to be aware of. Uh, before, after, during the migration, and also why you should stick with Akiap and VS App Center part of this migration. But before we start, let's do one another of my beloved history lesson section. So Akiap is the main product of a company named Bitstudium, and this is a German company that, from what I gathered, it's bit unclear. I guess part of We'll see in a bit, but part of the Microsoft acquisition, some of this exact details of when the company was founded and all that stuff can kind of get lost. But in the blog post where they talk about the acquisition, uh, they're saying that Microsoft always been a great client already of their tools and blah, 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 since 2011. So, and from what I can see also in GitHub, like a lot of these three kind of starts around there. So let's assume it's around there. Uh, like I said, it is a German company. Uh, I've met, th- so I've met with some of the engineers working them, uh, working there, uh, from some of the typical iOS and Apple conferences that I, we've discussed in the past years. And there's, uh, great people working there. The main feature they offer for iOS, tvOS, Mac developers, and also some of other cross platform, I think they were mainly on iOS, on Android too. Uh, and maybe a bit of Windows, but that I'm not sure. I never really looked into are the three following things. Uh, they were offering, they were, they focused mainly when it started on crash analytics, giving you the reason why your app that is running on a device that you don't own, of course, it's your customer's device, giving you the data to understand why is it crashing and how can you maybe fix that crash? Because don't forget, we're running native apps. They can crash. A bit like servers, they can crash too, but that it's a bit more uh, problematic if a server crashes. But uh, of course, source of, of bugs could be crashes on native apps, and that is a good way to figure it out. On top of this, throughout the years, they have added a beta distribution and build distribution functionality, uh, making sure that let's say you don't want you before test flight was from Apple, uh, it was also a a tool for that where you can distribute builds to people inside the company or just to better customers where they would try your app before your full launch and then you would do that so i'm confused because like if we rewind to like a long ass time ago yes uh, there was a github project called hockey not hockey app just hockey okay and that was Basically, like using your enterprise certificate to do beta distribution within your company. And my understanding was that Hockey App was just like, we're a hosted version of this thing. 
it could be from what I gather on the website, they are named Arcap from the ad arc kind of naming, like ag arc distribution. Oh. And like arc, arky, app, and that's where they, they put that in their uh, FAQ. That makes me angry. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, it's a bit sad. Like, I don't mind that they're German, but they call it Aki app and they're making a shit ton of Aki references and they're not Canadian. Come on, guys. You know, like, but I digress again. But no, I. I'm the only one who's allowed to make hockey references. Okay. Uh, I don't think you're the only one that is allowed, but sure. Uh, but it could be. Uh, but I'm not sure about this project. Of course, if it is still on GitHub and it is under their uh, BitStadium Enterprise name, uh, maybe you will link it to them. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised because literally when they launched uh, a long time ago, I recalled... Uh, I was using the original, like, independent test flight, and Arkiap was, ah, oh, yes, Arkiap was also around uh, there with uh, Better Builds distribution. So I have it in front of me. It was called Hockey Kit. It is on the BitStadium oh. GitHub. Oh, yeah, recall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me see how old this shit is. Um, <laughs> the first release was in 2011, January huh, okay. 2011. Yeah, from what I gather, I think the Aki SDK, the uh, the iOS SDK, the late, the oldest release was from September 11. Okay. So yeah, I, that's why all the information points around uh, 2011. And in the recent year, they've added another layer. They added two layers, excuse me. They added a feedback where while you were still distributing those beta builds, there was no way for those users uh, to give you feedback about like bugs, all that stuff back to you. And last but not least, I think this was a bit limited compared to other tools, but they also had kind of analytics where you could send from your app custom event back to your key app and uh, you would have portals like you'll be already with just with the crash analytics. They are give you, they're able to give you like analytics, like how many active users you have, which OS they're using, but it's like really minimal compared to what Mixpanel can give you or New Relic or other tools like these. While talking about the old test slide, I it reminded me that when I joined Lightspeed, one of my first projects was to move more or less away from the old Archi, uh, from the old test flight to uh, Archiap itself. And it was also related to the time point where we looked at a tool that was more or less able to do more than just and uh, not have two tools, one for crash analytics and one for distribution. And we realized that uh, Archiap was that tool. A couple of years after, in December 14, uh, it was acquired by Microsoft. And at least in the iOS sphere, that was one of the first developer tool acquisition for Microsoft that was closer to our, uh, to our books, let's put it this way, to closer to home compared to what Microsoft has been doing. Uh, but I think Microsoft has been doing great with acquiring developer tools and maintaining them and stewarding, being a steward of them. And uh, Archiap is a good example of it. But more on that later. Uh, last year, in uh, on November 16, 2018, that's where uh, Microsoft announced one big news. They announced that Arcap would get retired in a year. So we're talking in November uh, 16, 2019. And hence, all of that episode is about exactly this announcement. Uh, 
And the idea was to say that they've are like part I think part of the reason they acquired a team like the hockey app team was to build VS App Center. Uh, because we'll see a VS App Center is more than those three or four features that I just mentioned. Uh, and I guess this team internally worked hard on building this. But when uh, Microsoft announced this plan last fall, they announced a full year of transition because there was some feature that was still missing at that point because for years they kind of left Arcap more or less working. I think one of the big changes, it, it came kind of became free. So they let it languish and it became, not languish, but it more or less, we had a couple of SDK updates. But I would say from since the last two years, you would see to start, you would start to feel that it was kind of winding down. And I get, last fall, they did this big announcement. That is, no, it's not winding down. It's just that we're preparing this transition of sadly killing this brand that is our key app and moving it under our VS App Center brand for more apps. Uh, like I said, uh, we're not using all of the four features that I just mentioned. Uh, we're mainly using our key app still today for distribution of builds even if it's not for really for better customers it's really for internal builds uh and uh of course for crash reporting and uh for crash reporting from our internal builds also up to our live builds one of the main reasons one of the main tools of reason we were looking for a tool uh back then is really like how we are using uh, our key app uh, for internal builds Sadly, we won't move to VS App Center for its distribution of builds because it kind of doesn't really fit our need. The re- the way we were using RCAP for build distribution was really to have a repository of builds that are created throughout our development lifecycle. So they're really not we're not optim we were not really using it for like let's say we want to have we have better customers that are using our retail product at light speed and they were like they want to see what's coming soon we were really not using that at all uh, it was let's say like i am done developing a feature i want my qa team to look into it and then we also have like uh, uh, an alpha build that we also want qa to do or a build that is closer to the app store build uh, but a long time ago and it's still today it's like quite impossible to download all app store builds so we uh, we have those quote-unquote production build that we keep internally to make sure that we can test like migration from one app to the other uh, and make sure that we fix bugs uh, or we try to repo some of the customer issues that could be strange data migration from an old version to the other and that is quite hard to test on the app store and we're kind of keeping a pipeline of those builds a bit like if we were building a mac app because with mac app it's easy to keep those dot app or dot dmgs laying somewhere and then you reinstall them do your migration and then your migration code can run in a smooth manner so the flexibility of the way uh, deploying builds was done in our cap was allowing us to use it as a download server let's say i want to download the latest build Sure, I can download the latest build, but I want to get the build for three years ago. I can download the build from three years ago. I feel that these days, uh, VS App Center is more optimized to be a kind of a replacement or a competitor to TestLite, even the one that is provided by Apple. So for that, it is always optimized. Like, oh, get the latest better builds. Get the latest better builds. But I want to see an history, and that's where we've seen that uh, App Center is not really optimized for that. So today I want to talk about what we've done 
to uh, fix that, but just to tell you that for us, we've kind of decided to let that go. Uh, but in more or less in a one-liner, we more or less decided to uh, recreate that uh, kind of server where I can download all the builds plus uh, build an iOS app on top of that new server. So it's kind of our own test flight, but it's a bit more flexible and fits more with our uh, development lifecycle because we're big users of test flights for everything that is external beta customers. It's kind of strange that Visual Studio App Center isn't like leaning into that eternal repository of old builds thing because I don't think being a test flight competitor is a good business <laughs> like to put it in the easiest terms like the the only scenario i can see where it kind of makes sense is unlike test flight you can integrate all of your vs app center stuff right into uh visual studio for mac and stuff for xamarin development so you can have like your little side True. stuff for the xamarin people but otherwise like i just don't see the point in doing that when you could be doing something that is actually different and solving a need that developers have that's because i didn't tell you all the features that are available in vs app center so our cap was really limited on like beta testing and making sure that like crashes are part of the feedback to me like whether it's the user or the app itself like realizing there's a problem you get it back to you but what Microsoft is building right now with App Center is kind of a full-fledged development solution for iOS apps. So on top of the feature I just mentioned, they're adding CI and test capabilities. So they can run your unit tests. They can also run your app and do UI automation on a different pool of devices mm. automated in the cloud. They also have data storage APIs. They have authentication API. They have push notification stuff and all of that we're not using like we're we can pay for it we don't really care um there's downsides of us there's not downsides but there's a small trade-off that we have to do to move to uh vsm center a good one is just by keeping crash logs there and i'm staying some of my points for my gotchas but uh the data retention for our was forever literally like <laughs> keep all the data in microsoft they say 90 days for crash logs for builds uh they they want you to pay for Azure data storage if you want to keep some of that old data. If not, it gets purged. But you know, I'm not looking at my like three, four, five a year old a year old like data crash uh, like crashes. Usually, we release a build every couple of weeks. So of course, like if a crash disappears, I don't really care because the users have less crashes. At least 90 days can give me a trend of like, I mean, uh, am I introducing more crashes or am I fixing crashes? Which we felt is more or less good enough. At least with our like internal uh, app server, we have, we control the data retention so it, it becomes less of a problem. But it does mean that some of the builds we might lose uh, in 90 days and that's something we'll have to deal with. But yes, uh, with all those features that we are not using for uh, VS App Center, makes me feel that Microsoft wants it, this product, to be more a competitor to what BuddyBuild was that was acquired by Apple nearly two years ago, or what Firebase or the Amazon mobile services are today. It's like a fully-fledged server-based solution where you can trust them to do everything for your mobile development. Like everything is after coding more or less, they do it. Testing, CI, 
deployment. They also have integration for everything that is, let's say they test your build and they compile your build. There's always also an integration to publish that build to the app store. They can send it for you to the app store. You still need to go to the app store, app store connect, but they can do that final step for you. Well, uh, I'm not sure if they're using like tools like Fastlane in the, in the back to do that for you. I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, because I don't think they required you to use Fastlane for the CI stuff. But since I didn't look at it too much, don't quote me on that. But it feels that they are aiming more at those kind of fully fledged tools. And yes, if maybe some of their, like some of one of their components, like pedal testing is kind of fighting against Apple, uh, I'm eager to see what's going to happen in the next few years. Hopefully, once we start seeing what's happening with BuddyBuild inside of Apple itself, uh, I would like to see how those solutions, whether it's VS App Center, uh, Firebase, AWS, how they evolve uh, and other competitors, how they evolve with Apple's offering. So now let's move to the migration itself. Uh, when in the roadmap, Microsoft decided to put it in three stages. The first one is more or less you can connect into appcenter.ms, which is the website for that. And you can use your Archiapp credentials to see what's happening uh, there. And also both services are synchronizing data. So Archiapp is sending data to AppCenter and you can see this data from AppCenter. And that's literally the, the CU data from AppCenter, uh, from Archiapp in AppCenter. That more or less happened quite fast after last year's uh, announcement. The step two from that, which required a lot of dev work, was migrating your apps from the Archiapp system to the new system of Visual uh, Visual Studio App Center. And that was completed a couple of months back, literally, I think, two months ago. It, it, they announced it early August that it was completed. And the idea is free for users right now that they want to move from the old system to the new system. Uh that they would have to do that that migration. And that's literally what we'll have to go through tonight. And the last step is after you've migrated your app, the all your user account is still in the database, I guess, technically. They don't say it's, but it's kind of worded a bit like this. But all the user management or like organization management, if you're businesses, all of that is still in our cap and they're like slowly but surely migrating there. But I feel that... um even if November 16 is still in it yet, uh, that with the last step, if they're a bit late, they might push the limit a bit. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised that they would say like, oh, if you're migrating your app, even if the data is still in Archie app, like it's safe, even if we shut down the front end, that is Archie app. Like, I mean, they might not allow you that. Uh, I'm just speculating right now. But the fact that user management is still in Archie app, I, I'm not sure if they'll be there on time. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised that they decide to shut down the front end of Archiapp and still say, oh, don't worry, it's coming. And you can still manage it like with a hacky way of making the front end and the other front end, something like that. Because the reason I'm saying that is that was a part of the stress because the step two was supposed to be delivered in late, like early, mid to late spring of this year. Ooh. <laughs> and it ended up in August. Like we were saying like May, June. So like early uh, summer. And it ended up to being August. Because funnily enough, one of the gotchas again, I'm spoiling my gotcha section is if you're moving from, let's say, Crashalytics or other another like another popular one but 
if you're moving to a, from an external uh, service to a visual app, visual studio app center it was simpler you could have done that the day the, the data migration was done because for you it was literally creating a new app if you wanted to keep your history even if it was still keeping 90 days you had to wait for this step two of the migration roadmap to be complete to move your things uh from one of those and that was the stressful part uh, but we'll see that in the end uh, what i realized and that's kind of the main reason why i'm doing this episode is really to remove the stress because those migration even if they're by big companies like uh they could be a, a stress inducing on uh developers and of course like i'm like I just mentioned with the step three, it is still an ongoing development as we record this episode. Migra- so let's move into the migration step that are included or assumed part of the, the phase two. Uh, of course, they want you to read all the docs, which I'll let this exercise to the user, to the listener. But after reading the docs, you more or less come, come with those four steps. First one, is by going through the app, the app center portal, there's a transition portal and you can start by clicking on trying to f- try the migration and not committing to it because they will give you warnings or they give you hints on stuff you might need to fix or stuff that might not get moved. For example, they will tell you, oh, if you're using the feedback, uh, tools from our app, that we will never support in Visual App Studio. Visual Studio, yeah, Visual Studio App Center, excuse me. So you need to make sure that if you click the migrate button, that your app is already using a new feedback tool because Microsoft decided for an app center, they won't do it. Uh, they also mentioned that some type of user management won't be supported in, uh, App Center. So you all need to go back in our cap, fix the thing and then go back. You can still go through it. They, they tell you, they tell you clearly what's going to happen. But uh, it's better to fix it, more or less. That's where they say they're in the documentation. Fix it and then continue with the migration. Once you fix all those issues, you just click Migrate. You receive an email saying you oh, receive your request. From what I've seen in my experience, it takes 15, maximum 20 minutes. And then 15 minutes later, you receive an email. Hey, everything is migrated. And then if you were to go back to Archiapp, you still see those app in the Archiapp. But the second you click, you get redirected to the app center. And then it, those have been moved, I guess, to the old architecture, to the new architecture. At that point, once you've done this, this migration, that's where you can start, um, you can start moving away from the old iOS SDK or the Mac SDK to the Visual uh, Studio app center. And the way it has been built, it's a bit different. Uh, for example, uh, since they are both open source, uh, but the way the uh, Archie app was distributed, we were always building it, part of our builds. So it was never a binary included. But now uh, Microsoft is including binaries. So we take them as is mainly because like we could build the thing, but it is... Uh, one of the reasons we were building the SDK before is because that's how you were building specific components that you wanted. Let's say we didn't want analytics, so we removed the components of analytics. But now Microsoft, they've built modules in their SDK where you only integrate links to certain frameworks. And then you can, let's say you just want, you don't want the push notification one, but 
don't you don't include the framework for push notification and that's it uh, and then for that, so there's a couple of renames. The renames are quite easy to do because the interfaces to both SDK are similar. Uh, some features are not there, but like literally it's like a find and replace. Uh, let's say we were attaching metadata to our crashes to identify those crashes. Literally, I was just like calling the different delegate method and passing the different, the data a bit differently. But like it was literally like the renaming of like and swapping the SDK was super, super, super simple. That was, I think, the less stressful part. Of course, uh, you need to upload your build, like so it can see the crashes or it can do the distribution. And uh, there was either you were uploading in manually through the web interface, or you could use a tool called uh, Puck. It was included in the Aki app, Mac app. It's a command line tool, and that's what we're using now. This tool doesn't seem to exist, but that was kind of created in a uh, in a time where Fastlane was semi-popular. Now that Fastlane is uber popular, they of course have a Fastlane plugin. So this does mean that now we are a bit also using Fastlane, uh, which is a nice benefit. Uh, but all of this migration also uh, help us adapt Fastlane a bit, uh, a bit more than we were before. Uh, so on our iOS projects, uh, we add some adoption of Fastlane, but in my app, like in the app I'm working on, the app itself uh, was not uh, using Fastlane and uh, using our new uh, internal tools for builds plus uh, Fastlane. It means that now every time we create an IPA, uh, it's being created by Fastlane. It's uploaded with the Fastlane plugin to App Center. So it's a great improvement on top of what we use, we're doing with uh, Ruby scripts. So uh, hopefully at some point our old Ruby scripts will finally go away. Right now they have two, a uh, couple of remaining uh, behavior and like tools that we still need to use them. But I see that in the coming weeks or coming months, uh, those will go away. So after doing all of that, in theory, you should be golden. And that's mostly what should happen. Uh, I've run, uh, as of today, I've run that in two two of the four configurations we have uh, internally um so like i was saying we have like the 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 dev builds that we can provide to qa we have uh, a build from our master branch we also have the equivalent of the app store and we have uh the crash logs for the app store app itself uh so i'm just making just missing the more production part so really the the equivalent of the app store build plus that and that is mostly going to be done when you listen to my voice and I don't expect any issues. Famous last words. Yeah, no, I, you'll be, you'll be saying famous last words. Uh, but I'm quite confident. Like, uh, if I would have recorded this episode, I'd say a week ago when I started to work on this, uh, like I was, like we were quite stressed. Like the unknown was a bit frightening because we love that tool and we were like unsure. But the migration showed us that like Microsoft again, is committed to that and committed in a great way. So it's like it's it's a good learning exercise of how Microsoft is good at building dev tools and like supporting them. But before we go about that, uh I have a couple of gotchas. So I mentioned feedback module. If you were using the feedback module of our key app, you need to find a new one. It's funny because test flight got feedback in uh iOS 13. <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, they have improved feedback too. Like it's really, I've seen some of the notification also have like it detects when your app crashes. So you can send feedback to the, the, to the app developers. So yeah. Uh, and I think if you just like take a screenshot inside a beta app, it 
allows you to send it right away to the developer? Right. You get the same uh, screenshot uh, UI as you got in iOS 12, but when you press uh, OK or Done, uh, one of the options in the popper where it was Save or Delete, now it says Send Feedback. Yeah. So that's going to be quite interesting. I'm quite eager to see what our users uh, will do with this. The other thing is right now, if you have Ocap in your Mac or iOS app extension, sadly, you won't be able to use VS App Center just yet. Uh, mm. There have been like, even if they were a bit late, let's say on phase two, uh, in every couple of months, they post an update like everything. And I'll put a link in the show notes to their uh, App Center repo. Uh, and Microsoft has been like, again, like, I'm not saying I shouldn't surprise, but I've heard a lot in the past years about Microsoft DevTools and like, this is still amazing. They've been pretty upfront what's the, what's happening right now. They also have a roadmap that they've built since last year. And then they keep up to date, like, this is done. There's a check mark or there's, I think they use a, a running emoji. Somebody's running emoji and that means this is ongoing. Uh, and then they published, I think the last update was a beginning of the month saying, oh, here's the uh, August update. Here's what we've done in August. There was one for Je- July. I think the last one was maybe in June, uh, main after, before that. So they've been making sure that they keep updating the customers about what's happening. And that's reassuring in the end. Uh, of course, we received the, the scary email, uh, last fall and, of course, we're like, oh, come on, we have a year. So we delayed this. <laughs> and then we started to look and follow. I was like, oh, okay. In, in the spring, it's like, okay, they're a bit late. That's the step we need, you know. But then now we jump, uh, we jump in it and we realize, oh, no, no. Okay. Yes. Might be a bit late, but Microsoft is there to help us for sure. Yeah. I find that, uh, Microsoft is generally pretty good at maintaining a monthly update schedule with like fairly meaty, uh, updates for, pretty much all of their actively maintained developer tools, which is a really cool. Unfortunately, we are using a lot of stuff that is in maintenance mode right now, so I don't get the benefits of that very often. Um, but yeah, their, their new stuff tends to have like a pretty steady update schedule. Yeah, I hope you do at some point because like it, it does, it is a good segue to my last section. Uh, first of all, before the next session, it also one feature that some people I know could use is, uh, builds that are in OCAP, but they are stored externally. Uh, that again is another feature that is coming soon in a VS App Center. But in the good transition for my last session is like, OCAP is in a migration. Like, like, yes, it was owned by Microsoft. Now it was bought, but now they're like giving us, they could be giving you a reason to evaluate what's the market offering today, right? They say, hey, you need to do work to move to a new platform. So why should I move to your platform? And, you know, after looking at the market, so we were quite happy with what we got for years with Aki app. We used to be paying, pay, paying, mem- paying customers. I think with, I think it's because of the acquisition that is the Microsoft pulled the plug on paying members. Because I, I remember at some point it became free. Why? I don't recall, but I think it's after the, uh, maybe a year or two after the acquisition, they kind of said, Oh, it's free now. So that's always a good benefit. But even then for a free service, it was like amazing. It must be lined up because I know like, um, the Windows phone developer tools were in Visual Studio App Center, mm-hmm. uh, previously. And like at a certain point, they were, they decided like Windows phone and Windows 10 development is just free now. And I think that it might have just been like 
Visual App Studio in general is free. <laughs> and that's what they decided. Uh, and then it's like a value adds that you pay on top of that. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, like like if you were running CIs, you'll pay CI per hour spent on like, you'll pay like cloud services, right? Uh, but those smaller things, they're for free. I wouldn't be surprised yeah, for that, you right? You spend for usage on top of a base level of functionality. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, so that was it. But then we compared it with Linescape. Uh, so our other team on the Resto product, uh, they came from Crash Analytics, which now was, I think it was first from Twitter <laughs> and Fabric and then Firebase. But what they realized recently with the merge with Firebase is to keep it working, they had to include the whole Fire or uh, I'm not sure if it's a whole Firebase SDK or a significant amount of the Firebase iOS SDK inside their iOS app only for crash analytics. Yeah. Which is a big ask to ask somebody to do, especially if they were using one feature and now they need a big package, which is one of the benefits of Microsoft's integration of App Center. You want one thing, they'll let you have one thing. You don't need to include like 10 frameworks because it is being built modularly. You want Crash Center, they have a base App Center framework, then you want crashes on top of it, then you put those two frameworks and that's it. And there's a way to initialize the base framework so it knows about the other one. And that's quite nice compared to an approach like that. On top of that, we've realized that, again, I'm hitting on poor Crash Analytics' head, but <laughs> we also realized that some of the other players might not be doing good things. Uh, yeah. Here I'm pointing <laughs> out to uh, Crash Analytics and the custom fonts uh, debacle that was found, I think it's a couple of months ago. Uh, I'll put the link of, uh, Daring Fireball in the show notes where, um, they show their, uh, John Gruber is talking about Crash Analytics using custom fonts and not the custom fonts we, I discussed in iOS 13, like the old, old custom fonts based on provisioning profile. They use that to track users to make, and they did, they are upfront. People started complaining that, yeah, we need to know if this is a better customer of our system, of your app. So it's better for our analytics tool. I'm not saying that Microsoft might not be doing those bad things. I'm not saying that. I'm sure they can. But from what I've seen, from what I've heard from people, they're not in that direction. And that's reassuring. Yeah, Firebase is kind of a sad story because as someone who was like following what Firebase was before they got acquired into the Google Borg, um, Firebase just used to be like a, a serverless database that you could use uh, if you were doing web development. And they sort of repurposed the brand into being like a one-stop shop kind of like VS App Center. Yeah, I feel that they, they are going head-to-head with uh, Amazon Web Services. Microsoft, uh, no, Google as a cloud platform. As yeah. A pro- but I feel that they've like, compared to AWS, which is a huge monster now, like I went to the product page to see what, to make sure that what they were offering was kind of similar to, uh, what I was discussing. And like, it, like three clicks on pages to make sure, oh, mobile plus all the mobile offering. But like mobile is like the, uh, I think one of the 20 topics that AWX covers. Like it's crazy. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised that Google kept like GCP for, cloud products and then they are using the firebase brand for more mobile things but it's kind of sad because now when you talk about firebase like the word doesn't mean anything anymore like are you talking about the database or are you talking about any of these other 700 products that are offered under the firebase brand like you have no fucking clue um but like 
it, it's worrisome on one hand because you'd think that like an ad company like Google would know all of the tricks to be able to track and to do creepy shit because they constantly have to try and evade Safari security rules and other stuff that's being thrown in their way to try and track their users. And having that in a framework that is being pushed into or, or that they're trying to push into as many apps as possible is frightening. Uh, to play devil's advocate, though, like when Twitter had Crashlytics, they also did the thing where they were sniffing all of the URL schemes, and that's why we can't use URL schemes anymore. So, I mean, like, there's no winning. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's worrisome to have that association. And I think there's, like, a strategy tax slash advantage on Google's front to saying, here is this big monolithic Firebase framework that you can include in your app. You're going to have to pay the full price of including this framework, regardless of whether you're using one technology or not. So instead of using other vendors to do your other things, even if they might be more advantageous for you, uh, you should probably just stick with us because you're already paying this huge tax by having this giant framework bundled into your app, and it'll be more convenient that way and all that stuff. So I, I think there's some of that too. Um yeah, that's a fair point. So I've, I know that there's like, I think, uh, oh, I forgot their name. I didn't know them, but there's sm- other smaller players that we also have seen in different, con- uh, like controversies. Uh, the, I forgot their name, but the one that was also recording the screens where now Apple is like blocking you if you oh, yeah, their yeah. SDKs. Um, I've seen a couple of them, right? So I felt that on top of what Microsoft had been doing, I, I I would say around like 2013, 2014, which is when they acquired Akiap. Like they, they have a good track record of acquiring those dev tools company and doing something good out of them. And good here is like making sure that as dev tools, they stay alive, they get investment. Maybe they're doing something creepy. And I know because I'm sure somebody will say, Oh, here's the example where Microsoft did something creepy. So that's why I'm going to protect myself here, but like, I feel that in the past few years, they did good with Arkeap, even with this migration. They've acquired Xamarin uh, w- that we mentioned a bit, and they're doing great. Like They used the Xamarin code base more or less to have Visual Studio on the Mac. And yes, it's a bit weird to say, but people like seem to like it. Never used it, but I've heard good comments about it. Uh, and more recently, they've acquired fucking GitHub. Like, GitHub is now Microsoft, literally. And hopefully, yes, we see, we've heard bad things about the GitHub organization. Hopefully it being stewarded by Microsoft will help them to self-correct those things and making sure that they're doing the right things for dev tools. And that's why it was kind of a no-brainer to staying with Microsoft and VS App Center because Microsoft had a good track record. And I think even amongst Apple developers, this is going to sound like strange, but I think Microsoft has higher trustworthiness and maybe approval as a developer company than Apple does, which is kind of insane considering a lot of us are Apple developers, right? It's, but it, they just have like this track record that they're doing like trustworthy quality work. And even though we might not philosophically, uh, philosophically, uh, philosophically agree with, uh, stuff like Xamarin, or just stuff that is lock-in related. Um, like, they're doing a great job. And I think a lot of the creepy stuff that Microsoft is doing is, like, limited to the Windows product group. Uh, a lot of, like, the 
Bing ad integration into Windows and all of that stuff is like <laughs> siloed into Windows. And that's great because we don't like Windows anyway. Um, True. But, but the developer group seems to be doing some pretty great work. And increasingly, I think you are seeing their reputation rise amongst like developers of all platforms. Like I think VS Code is like the most used text editor nowadays, which I, I have a lot of issues with VS Code. Um, namely that it's an Electron app and I hate Electron apps, but it is doing some crazy stuff that even like long time text editors have a hard time competing with. And especially if you're doing like heavy uh, JavaScript type script and like Angular React type development uh, on the modern web, like you almost don't have a choice but to use VS Code because of how well it works in that series of tools. And I think that's part of why like they've risen so much in esteem in the recent years. Yep. So I would say that if you were in our situation where you were with them, uh, when you would look at the landscape, you would realize quite quickly that I won't say they own the landscape, but they're a strong player. And if you were to pay the cost, I think they've showing you that the, their migration cost is well worth it compared to migrating it away. So I would uh, end this episode with two small notes. The first one is... Uh, November 16 is soon, so uh, I don't know if they're going to push the, the date or not, but uh, if your iOS app is still running with the old uh, OCAP SDK, please, I would strongly suggest you that you deploy uh, the new a new version of it soon. So maybe let's say I have a month uh, before. That's kind of what we're aiming at. We're uh, aiming at a new release uh, soon in early October that has the new SDK and making give us a month to see if there's anything wrong so at least we have time to fix and deploy on a new version so time is running to be honest on this uh, maybe you can bet on them giving you more time but i feel that the clock is ticking and you should upgrade your ios apps and uh, app center is a great tool uh, to keep using uh, for that Last point before I mention it, because before somebody mentioned it in follow-up, uh, we are still using the Apple crash reports, but I feel that the Apple crash reports sometimes can give you crashes that those SDK inside your app cannot get. Like, let's say, like, you get, uh, you get uh, killed because you're spending, like, you're, you're blocking the main train for 10 seconds. Those types of crashes, because it's the OS figuring them out, uh, Apple can give them to you. But I've seen mixed results uh, with our app with getting the huge amount of crashes we see from the Apple side, uh, even with their own integration. So I feel that even with Apple's integration, I feel it's still worthy uh, to have a crash analytics tool inside your app to get all of those crashes. And my last note is to say that uh, I think I think in the last five years, that is literally the first time I'll do that because I think it's also the first time I would also do what I'm about to announce. <laughs> but uh, tomorrow, which is going to be uh, the 26th, uh, I'll be uh, uh, at the time of recording that. It should be done. But uh, uh, I'll be, we will be restarting our Cocoa Heads uh, season here in Montreal. And I'll be presenting this exact topic to the Montreal community. So, um, so if you listen to this episode, because I give a quick note uh, of the podcast during the presentation. So welcome. If you start to attend the Montreal community because of this episode again on the, my recent iOS development episodes, I guess welcome again too. And if not, so, uh, wish me good luck because, uh, I guess, but 
since I already did this topic, it's going to be a breeze uh, tomorrow too. And that's it. Cool. So if you want to find show notes for this episode, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 122. You can also find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. This show is on Twitter at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Or you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nicolivier at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And in two weeks, we'll see you with a very special episode about my photography setup. Hmm. Ooh. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>